soon after the national champion is crowned every year in April, um, writers from around the country come out with uh, their rankings of teams for the next year. It's a kind of an, not an easy piece, but like a, a good idea. Like people are already thinking now about what's going to happen next year, who's coming, who's going, who are the big recruits, who are the transfers, who's losing a lot, who's gaining a lot of freshmen, whatever the case may be. And so it's a, it's a good story idea. I've clicked on them. I actually have compiled a lot of them into uh, like an aggregate ranking because it's interesting to see what the kind of the consensus is. My problem with these articles is that it seems like all of them are called way too early rankings. Like, when do we decide that they all should have the same, like, we all decided it was called way too early. Like, let's be creative. There are other ways to say that these rankings might not hold much water for much longer than just unanimously calling them all way too early. What do you think, Tom? I mean, uh, how, how early is way too early? To me, like, doing a top 25 uh, in April 2019 for the 2022 season, that would be way too early. But this is, you know, we have the I have summer. I number one in my in my way too early twenty twenty two. Yeah, that will I'll allow that. But these other ones, you know, it's it's April. The season starts in November. It's a baseball season away. It's not that early. And 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 we all know, like in these all art all these articles, they always say like, well, if this comes back or this guy comes, this guy leaves, like this, they're really gonna miss him. Or if this guy transfers, is expected. You know, so it's. You have all the caveats already in the story if you're doing your research. So you don't need to put the caveat at the top. It's just another covering uh, your rear end situation by a lot of these rankers. So I agree. It's, it's not way too early for the next season. Two, two, two or three seasons in advance, sure. It's six months, Tom. It's a hockey season. That's a, you get that reference? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, man. man. You said basically, it's from A Few Good Men um, when they're willing to go down um, for the sentencing all the way to six months for the... Um, for the involuntary manslaughter oh, right. for, for Harold and um, uh, Private Downey and Dawson. And they're unwilling to take that. We're not going to, you know, say we did it. And uh, Tom Cruise's character says, it's six months, Harold. It's a hockey season. So basically that's what it is. It's six months, approximately, a baseball season in this case, to the start of the uh, college basketball season. So maybe I think your point is that it's not way too early, actually. And I think that uh, – it's too early, but maybe not. Way, maybe it's not way too early. Maybe the problem is the way. If you just call it too early, top twenty-five. First of all, that's good alliteration. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I think that we we've solved that problem for everyone. Double bonus the rest of the way. Double bonus as well. Right. Two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 27 of the Double Bonus Podcast, an off-season edition. Along with Brendan DeRocher, I'm Tom Borstein. We are coming to you on Sunday, April 28th. The college basketball season is obviously in a rearview mirror, but there's still plenty going on. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Twitter at DoubleBonusPod, and you can email us at DoubleBonusPod at gmail.com and rate, review, and uh, download all the uh, subscribe on all the uh, podcast apps. And Brendan, we have... An off-season of college basketball, and it seemed perfectly timed that the trial, uh, the FBI investigation, has kicked back into gear, which is, I guess, nice for everybody who follows the sport to have something to follow besides basketball. We got a lot of transfers. We got the coaching carousel, which has mostly stopped spinning. Um, so what are you most excited about now that the Virginia-Texas uh, Tech game is three weeks behind us? 
What am I most excited about? Well, you know, I think for me, especially since neither Providence nor Northwestern has played a meaningful game, well, Northwestern has played a meaningful game since February, but like even a, any kind of game that matters for about a month, more than a month, month and a half, I, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm kind of thinking about the next team. Northwestern's going to be terrible, but just like there's transfers and things like that happening. So I'm kind of just like, oh, I'm, I kind of am missing college basketball a little bit. Um, already um so i think that i'm most excited for to see where all these transfers end up and who comes back from the nba draft and who decides to stay in but we're not going to know well transfers are kind of trickling in but we're not going to know the nba uh draft stuff until at least uh, i think it's may 29th is the last date to pull your name out and until that happens there's so many people whose names are in and it's hard to track which ones of them which ones said they were quote unquote testing the waters which ones are definitely going and which ones maybe said they were definitely going, but actually afterwards they decide to come back because they didn't get a very good review. So, you know, we're not going to spend that much time today talking about um, like kind of overall who's good, who's bad type stuff, just because uh, I guess in that sense it is, it's too early, not way too early. Right. But it's, yeah. Until the May 29th date comes and goes and we know these NBA prospects and whether they're, where they're going to be, um, it's a little bit hard to, to know. Um, yeah. So that, I guess I'm excited to, for that, to that date to come and then we can kind of with a more clear eye look towards the next season. Now, do you also find it weird? I know you're not the biggest NBA fan, but I find it very hard to go straight from watching, you know, 63 or whatever college basketball tournament games and just go right into the NBA, the NBA season basically ends the next week. Then it starts the playoffs, the game. It's it's still weird for me to adjust to a 24-second shot clock and adjust to people hitting every open three they take and just the different pace of the game, um, the different sounds in the arena. Do you have trouble adjusting to the NBA right after college basketball? Sometimes I feel like I need a week break before I make the jump from college basketball to professional basketball. Even though yeah, I watch it currently I mean... during the year, which is weird. Like I'll go, I'll turn a college basketball game on, put an NBA game on, but I watch so much college basketball in March that when the playoffs come around, it's like, oh, it's like a shock. Yeah, I haven't been watching much the NBA. I've tried to watch some of the Celtics playoff games um, and turned a couple other uh, other ones on here and there. I saw former Texas Longhorn DJ Augustine hitting the big shot against uh, for Orlando against Toronto in game one of that series. Uh, I guess the only great moment of the series for Orlando is they got kind of trashed the rest of the series. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... The NBA, we don't talk about the NBA a lot on this podcast intentionally because there's a lot of podcasts out there that try to kind of always reference the NBA or it's kind of about college, but it's really more like NBA draft focused. And that's not my focus, our focus at all. But the NBA game is so much different. It's so much cleaner usually to look at. The spacing is so good. Um, And again, guys just make all the open shots, which... It sounds like that should be a good thing, but it also is kind of like not as fun <laughs> in its own yeah. way. And then, and the arenas too, like they get excited for the playoffs and stuff, but it's not the same kind of atmosphere. I, I think the thing that, if we're not really talking about this, but I'm talking about it now, the thing that, <laughs> the reason I don't like the NBA that much, although I, I like to listen to podcasts about the NBA, that's a little bit weird of me, but um, is that so there's almost no part of the season that like there's no, there are very few important moments during like the nine months of the season, like the regular season, 16 teams make the playoffs out of 30, you know, who they're all going to be 
uh, any or any ones that are going to be title contenders. So most of the season is like meaningless basketball. Um, it is like big matchups, maybe like some one-on-one individual matchups that are exciting. But like when it comes to what actually matters in a season, mo- there are so many possessions and so many games, it's just like meaningless. And then in the playoffs, even the playoffs where you feel like the meaning should be much higher, for the most part, the better team is going to win every series. And it's only when we have kind of upsets or possible upsets that things get a little bit interesting. So even within the playoffs, there are so few games and moments that are truly meaningful. Um, and so I think that that's, it, it just feels like every situation is a little more tense in college basketball. Like, like there's actually is importance in like this game in February about, you know, whether you make the tournament or not, or whether you'll win your, your conference championship. Now, some people are completely focused only on final fours and national titles. And so in that sense, a lot of the season in college basketball is going to be meaningless if you're, uh, if you have that kind of focus and you're like a Kentucky fan or or North Carolina fan or something like that. But I think that it just feels like more of the time watched college watching college basketball is watching meaningful moments than in the NBA. Yeah, I think I don't think anyone would dispute that the quality of the on-court product is better in the NBA, but the quality of the entertainment of the season is probably, in our mind, obviously better in college basketball. There's something for everybody. Like there's a team that has a shot at defeating the number one team in the uh, country on its home court that's a huge deal whereas if in you know the warriors lost to the bucks a few years ago that wasn't that big a deal for the bucks like when the bucks weren't great like it didn't matter it's like whatever it's one game in an 82 so i think you're right that uh, yeah but it is still weird seeing 24 seconds on the shot clock and <laughs> like like oh the game's over it's like you know like you feel like it's, it's also confusing at the end of games you know they're up, they're up five with like 30 seconds left like that's pretty much done in college basketball <laughs> but the nba like oh they're like four more possessions coming well, I mean, last night, apparently, in yeah. the Spurs, I didn't actually see it, but I saw, like, I guess the clip afterwards of the Spurs-Nuggets game. The Spurs were down four. Nuggets had the ball with, like, 30 seconds left. Yep, and, didn't foul, a- yeah. and the Spurs didn't foul. I guess they couldn't hear Popovich yelling at them. Like, he was yelling at them, right? Yeah, like, I, I, uh, I actually only saw tweets about the video. I didn't actually watch the video. But, yes, yeah. apparently <laughs> they were getting yelled at to foul, but they didn't look over and didn't foul down four with 30 seconds left which obviously is a uh, fouling situation because even if you best case scenario you're still down two possessions with like eight seconds left so yeah what, what literally happened is they miss a shot and then the rebound came to san antonio and then the game was over <laughs> they had like four seconds with the ball and they like went up the court and like chucked a shot yeah it was, bad. Um, it was almost like uh, michigan florida state in the 2018 regional final in uh, la last year 2018 yeah leonard hamilton got some flack for that uh yeah. afterwards yeah all right let's go so let's let's go back to college basketball exclusively. Um, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about the FBI investigation, the Will Wade yeah. statement? What? So, you know, when I was writing through, running through some of this rundown stuff, uh, kind of just what we're going to talk about. There, there has actually been a lot that's happened since we last spoke, um, and I, I'm going to put it like to me, I say, I put those like three big questions. One, what are the implications of the FBI investigation? So we can start with that. Two, you know, now the coaching carousel, like you said, is mostly ended. Uh, what have we learned? What have been the trends? And what do we think of the best and worst hires? And then three is kind of the more the broad player movement one. Like we have some transfers to talk about. Uh, we have transfers that might happen still. We have the NBA draft declarations. And, you know, the biggest transfer news, and this is kind of my third question, is about the Housers leaving Marquette. And what does that mean for Marquette, a team that some had in their way too early top 25s, like as high as literally second in the country, 
which I thought was way too high as well as, well as being way too early. Um, <laughs> but like, I think we can probably hit most of the things that have happened by like looking at those three questions. Let's start with the FBI investigation, something we really haven't so much time talking about for a variety of reasons. It's not ultimately all that interesting to me, and maybe that's part of why we haven't talked about it, but it is significant, and we did learn a lot this week. Um, what what are your thoughts on the trial and like what came out in over the last few days? Uh, it's nothing surprising. I mean, it's like, I just don't understand why people are stunned about this or want to like, cl- I don't know. I, I don't think pearl clutching is the right word because it is wrong. And I think we should be concerned about it, but I don't think it's to some extent, but I just don't think it's that surprising. And also the NCAA's total indifference to it is a little troubling as well. I know Dan Wetzel wrote a huge column about it on Yahoo uh, this week, just basically the NCAA is like letting it play out and then we'll do their own thing, but they don't really seem to, I don't know, they don't seem to care as much as you would think an NCAA that's charged with protecting amateurism would care about this stuff. And that to me is the biggest problem. Like, I don't, I'm yeah. not surprised. Like all these, like, there's so much smoke. Like, it's almost like the NCAA is like pretending to, wants to give off the appearance of caring and will nail people for violations. But then when it comes down to it, isn't really um, going all, it doesn't really seem to be as concerned as it should be but also again i wouldn't really want the NCAA like working with law enforcement to ferret this stuff out i don't know i think i think the the system is destined to fail just because there's so much money at stake that there's no real way to run this cleanly but at the same time the NCAA just it doesn't look it doesn't look great there's no way for this to make the NCAA look good yeah i have i have a lot of thoughts and i'm not sure that they're coherent you know, it, uh, so on, on the one hand, um, I think that the NCAA can often get unfairly vilified in in all of this because there's so many people who are so much in favor of the of the athletes getting paid because the schools are making so much money off of it, and the NCAA is making a lot of money off of the uh, college basketball and college football in particular. Um, I'm not that sympathetic to that case. Because I think that, especially in college basketball, which is what I care about, college football, I don't care about as much, because there are other options in college basketball. You can go straight to the D-League, you can go to Europe. You don't have to play college basketball. So anyone who, like Wendell, Wendell Carter's mother, who compared it to slavery, I'm sorry, it's not anything like slavery. It doesn't mean they're not exploited, but they're participating in an optionally in an exploitative system, and actually very few of the athletes are truly exploited because very few of the athletes are independently valuable to a school. And but So a lot of the problems are around those athletes, this set of 30, 40, 50 athletes a year who are independently valuable to many people, to shoe companies, to college basketball coaches, um, to NBA teams, um, and to others who, and then to boosters, et cetera. Right. And so the question is, what do you do about that? I think the first thing that needs to be done is for the NBA to be forced to let the players in. Like, I think that's the very first thing. Like, the college basketball is participating willfully in a situation that forces players to go to college unless they want to go abroad or play for very little money their first year. So they could, the NCAA could say, um, okay, the way they could fight back is say we're not allowing freshmen to play, and then those players will just sit out here and then go to the NBA a year later. 
but they should obviously trying to work together to change that. It's probably going to change soon. I think that that's one thing that'll actually be very helpful for this whole system. Um, and beyond that, like the NCAA needs to spend more money on enforcement. They make a lot of money. Look at Facebook. Facebook makes a lot of money, and then they got in a lot of trouble. They make a lot more money than the NCAA. But Facebook is a huge company. They got a lot of trouble over data. And they continue to get in trouble over data. They've paid a huge fine, and they've had to bring on a ton more staff that's actually cut into their bottom line significantly to mo- do, do privacy and data monitoring and all this kind of stuff as a result. Well, you're the NCA. You want to make money off of college basketball and college football, then, and you want to have rules? Then you need to enforce your rules, and they just do not do a very good job of enforcing their rules. Um, they depend on other investigations to get them information. Uh, they have very... Uh, limited powers of coercion, especially as players leave. Um, the uh, recent changes that uh, last summer basically mandated um, more cooperation or to participate in, in college basketball, I think m- only for coaches. Um, so I, like, it's a black market. I get that. Um, and the incentives are out of whack because the NCAA is so... It's, like, it's similar to performance-enhancing drugs. Like, the benefit of, of taking PEDs, I'm thinking kind of more Olympic athletes than others, but it could go to others. The benefit is really, really big because you can go from being you know a good athlete to like a world-class athlete, and there's a lot of money and fame that goes with that. And the, and the cost is you get caught, which is like disgraceful, but ultimately uh, you probably won't get caught. And two... You, if you don't do it in the first place, you're probably never going to be in a position in a position to like be great. To, you're to lose anything when, by getting caught. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, people seem to think like people like Jay Billis and and a lot of journalists journalists they think it's so simple, like this solving this problem is so simple. But I I don't think it is because I do think there's a distinction between college athletics and like amateur college athletics and professional athletics, and I don't know. The problem is the money has gotten so big. Like it wasn't as big a deal when coaches were making like decent money, but not great money. But since the onset of television in the '80s, now coaches are making huge money, and athletic departments are making huge money. And then that that stark difference, I think, is what mean causes a problem uh, because it's 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 too big of a difference to seem fair and people are rightfully saying that it's not fair i just don't know actually a good way to go about fixing it well i definitely think the one and done rule needs to end like it's a basically a free developmental program for the nba to save the nba team's risk by having these players play at kentucky or duke or kansas or north carolina wherever for a year just to get an audition and then they learn more about them so they're 19 instead of 18. But these players are still really coveted by the college players, by the colleges. They're getting paid, or there's all this is what's causing a ton of the money. So you immediately took out, the, you know, the 15 or 20 best players, and they went to the draft. I guess that'd probably be right the number or so. You would really reduce a lot of it, and then that would just it would just be a good start. And I think there, and that would also um, just provide a viable alternative because it's not slavery, obviously, but it is much easier path to go to college and play for a year than to is to like when you're 18 years old go play in europe or go in the d league where you get paid almost no money and you have less structure and less exposure um so it's really an unfair choice to tell the players oh yeah you don't know you don't have to play college basketball but your other choices are move to europe or or play like for pennies on the dollar in a league where no one's going to see you and it's not on tv really 
Um, that's not really a fair choice. When, or when the other choice is like pay and we'll not play and we won't pay you anything. So it's not mm-hmm. slavery, but it is still an unfair choice that they're forced upon. It's not like a balanced choice. But yeah, the NCAA is just not, I don't know. It's it's There's no easy fix. That's the other thing. I totally agree with you on that. There's no way you can just say, oh, just pay the players. You have to figure out the market value for every single player. Like every player has value to the um, to the league because these, you can't play like Duke doesn't exist and doesn't have a market if they can't play Wake Forest once or twice a year. And so everybody needs to, everyone would deserve to be paid something. You just have to figure that out. It would just be a total, yeah. we don't need to go down this rabbit hole today. But well, just, I, mean, I think part of it is how many, how many players would be more valuable to the school than the cost of, a, of attendance and, and the tuition and all of that. So like, I, I don't think there's that many players. There's probably maybe as many as 1,000, probably 500 um, of players who are actually more valuable to their schools than the than the value of their scholarship. Right. Um, yeah. It's tricky. Anyway, and, it doesn't look good for anybody, <laughs> and no one comes out looking good. That's the bottom line, and it doesn't really affect my enjoyment of the sport that much because I just know that I watch it not for. I just don't care. I'm not gonna get worked up over. It. Just like I really don't care that much who is on what drug like it's just a risky thing because you it's the same false you it gives you a false choice here like oh well arizona got out of they're dirty i'm gonna root for arizona state well how do you know arizona state's clean it's like when i know this is the thing we've talked about many times in our track and field watching sessions but like you're rooting for usain bolt uh in the hundred because you think he's clean when uh justin gallon's not clean because he's failed drug tests but what makes you so sure usain bolt's clean and i think the same thing applies to college basketball you're getting a a forced choice here and i don't think that um i mean a false choice rather and i don't think that uh, i would assume no one's clean and just go from there and it's a lot easier to enjoy the sport yeah i think i'm I'm still somewhere in the middle on that too both for track and field and for college basketball of like you know like i do want the the track and field athletes to not dope and i do think there are some that do not dope and but ultimately like I I don't even know. It's it's very tricky. I, I do want to talk about some of the things. If you, if you if those of you listening have not followed this, some of the things that came out um, in the last week that might be notable. Well, right after we recorded, actually, last two Sundays ago, uh, Will Wade was was reinstated in a carefully worded statement by LSU. Um, but basically, they said that Wade had kind of given enough. Uh, reasons for why he was cited on these reports as basically making offers to players, including Javante Smart, who was at LSU last year. Um, didn't, it wasn't an endorsement. It wasn't um, even a vote of confidence. It was just like we are no—he's no longer on leave, and now he's our coach again. Um, and he had to give up two hundred fifty thousand dollars in bonuses. Okay, fair enough. Um, I didn't realize that. It's, that's that's it's real money. Um, and then in the trial itself. Um, sh- Sean, if you really want to get deep in the trial, the, an episode earlier this week of the CBS I and College Basketball podcast with Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander, I thought they actually did a really good job on it. Uh, Matt Norlander was there in the courthouse in lower Manhattan. Um, but some of the key things, Sean Miller comes out in, in a weird way as being like the only big-time head coach that seems to be directly involved in these payments. It's, uh, the rest of them, it's always like assistant coaches. Um, but Sean Miller, very very happy to talk about things on tape apparently um if you believe christian dawkins um who's who's on trial now um 
Marty Blazer, who's basically turned to, into state's evidence um, in trying to get, uh, uh, you know, bring down Dawkins and others, uh, was a, one of the key witnesses. Um, a lot of schools have come up. Um, you know, Syracuse was mentioned. Uh, the funny thing is that actually Rick Pitino uh, was the one coach that was cited specifically by Christian Dawkins as not knowing anything that's going on. And it wasn't like in a good light. It wasn't like, oh, Rick Pitino is so clean. It's like that guy's clueless. So um, the, the people who thought it was ridiculous, the idea that Rick Pitino didn't know what was going on at Louisville and actually wasn't involved at all in, in uh, Brian Bowen or other things, it seems like maybe that actually is theoretically possible that he just willfully or was kind of just, you know, out to lunch on that sort of thing um, and wasn't directly involved, which could, it's in weird way, make him more likely to get another good job in college basketball in the next year or two. Well, if he's not too busy uh, winning with Panathinaikos of the Greek Basket League and the Euro League also over there, he's having a blast over there. Um, yeah, it's a, I don't know. I just, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a letdown is to have this coverage immediately switch to the uh, the trials and such. But it's kind of interesting once you get in the weeds on the legal parts of it. Yeah, but Sean Miller doesn't come out looking great. And neither does Rick Pitino. It's very strange, though. Because like in, in this situation, you almost always say, oh, there's no chance Rick Pitino doesn't know what's going on. Like, oh, a likely story. But it seems like that may be true, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, um, I do recommend reading the article that you cited, Tom, by Dan Wetzel. He mentions all, a lot of the teams that are involved. Um, obviously, Kansas is kind of is evolved because of uh, Christian Dawkins' relationship with um, Adidas, right? Um, yes. Well, then, by the way, Kansas just signed an extension with the Adidas with Adidas on their apparel deal. Which, odd odd yeah. timing, but yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> basically, like one of the key things is DeAndre Ayton. Um, DeAndre Ayton was the number one pick in the draft last year by the Phoenix Suns. He went to Arizona. It was a surprise. Most people thought he was going to go to Kansas or maybe, um, I think there were other schools involved, but it was like kind of Kansas and Arizona. He went to Arizona, um, and there's evidence that basically Christian Dawkins had already agreed to get, get money to DeAndre Ayton so that he would go to Kansas. So I don't know if he double-crossed them or if he never got the money or if he got more money from someone else or if he returned the original money. I don't know how that works, but uh, it seems basically what we kind of know is the top 15 to 20 players are getting money to play college basketball. And part of it is, you know, it's not, it seems like the money is largely coming from shoe companies or from agents who want a relationship with those players after they leave college, and but they kind of basically use the schools as a means to like get the players um, connected with their brand or their or their a- agency, and so it's like okay, if we want uh, Christian Doggins wants to start an agency where he signs basketball players and he's relations with Adidas, well, let's get him to an Adidas school. Let's have Bill Self talk well about um, of Adidas and about Christian Dawkins so that DeAndre Ayton leaves, then he signs with Christian Dawkins. That's basically what we're talking about here. It seems in most cases it doesn't seem to be as as often where like a Kansas booster is like going out or giving money to assistant coach to give to like the, the dad of DeAndre Aiden, although that, that may happen too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can probably move on. Um, unless you have more to say. About, no, I, uh, I think we've covered it. It's, it's a yeah. depressing situation, but here we are. So the second item is coaching changes. So um, I think uh, there've been a couple of, ma- of major hires since we last spoke 
Um, St. John's finally pulled the trigger uh, in hiring Mike Anderson, for the former Arkansas coach. And prior to that, he was coaching Missouri, UAB. He was a longtime Arkansas assistant. Um, and that situation uh, took on it was it was a kind of a it was a bad look for St. John's. They reached out to several candidates, or they reported to reach out to several candidates. It was becoming a thing for mid-major coaches to say they were interested, even maybe they weren't even contacted. But like James Jones, uh, Ryan James Jones from Yale, Ryan Odom from UMBC, Tim Clewis from I- Iona, the St. John's alum, um, Porter Moser at uh, Loyola, Chicago, um, all were mentioned, and some it's believed that at least a couple of them actually turned down St. John's. Um, ultimately, I think they landed with a good coach. Mike Anderson's never had a losing season as a head coach. He's made a lot of NCAA tournaments. He's made a f- couple of deeper runs. The one thing he has never done is live or coach north of Missouri or east of Birmingham, Alabama. So that's a, that's the big question mark is how will he fare as a, as a head coach in the Big East in a place like St. John's, which is a little bit of an awkward place due to, you know, it's not like a beautiful big campus like he's used to at Arkansas and Missouri. I assume those are beautiful big campuses. I don't know. Have you been to Arkansas, right? I am in Arkansas. The campus is nice. I would not say Fayetteville, Arkansas is on the top of my list of places I'd like to return to in the United States of America. But Whereas uh, you live in Queens, which is where St. John's is located. So. Yeah, it's true. Um, what I understand about the St. John's, uh, searches. Where is all this information coming from? Yes, I know some coaches may be leaking it, but can't St. John's have a better lid on what's getting out to the media so they don't look like idiots? And it'll, I think it'll come up when we talk about UCLA, but why don't they just say, like, let's keep it quiet? Like, there's some people in the world who seem to be able to negotiate uh, trades or deals and have it be a surprise and just announce it when it's done. Whereas this St. John's job was out and about, and we knew pretty much like every negotiation. They, we knew that they went to Iona for um, Clewis and then Iona is like, no, no, we want this much money then for the buyout, and like, and then St. John's is too cheap to get it. Why don't they just like wait till they negotiate a deal before? Or is the reporting in the New York Post so good that they can't keep it a secret? Or yeah, what's going on there? That's my question. Yeah, it sounds like things are being leaked. Maybe um, St. John's most uh, wealthy or best known wealthy alum is the the magnate of vitamin water. Uh, what is that guy's name? Mike Repoli, or Repole, R-E-P-O-L-E, and he went on a big rant on the Francesca show um, about how the process was poor and basically wanted everyone fired and said he'd give money to basically fire the president and the AD and everyone. Uh, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. Uh, one, it's not good if you, if this kind of person has this kind of power um, right. as, a, as, a, as a booster. Two, um, Chris Mullen was not fired. So I think that's one thing that, you know, that I think we need to realize that maybe there's mutual interest, but ultimately Chris Mullen left. Um, it wasn't like St. John's necessarily was like, we are getting rid of Chris Mullen and then we have all these guys we want. It, w- it might have been more like Chris Mullen has decided to leave and now we have to find a coach. Right. Um, so it, it, in, that's a kind of in, an unfairness to St. John's. The other thing is... Um, what is the other thing? I, I, I think those are two, the two big things to me. Like, um, I'm, I'm actually not that concerned about Mike Anderson. Um, I think he'll be okay. Uh, you just get a couple of uh, coaches who are uh, assistant coaches from the area who know the AAU scene and know the high school scene in New York. Um, and you can bring in players who are not from, Saint, uh, you know, New York. This is not the 80s when 
uh, you know, yeah. Walter Berry and Chris Mullen and Mark <laughs> Jackson were were there. Um, oh, I guess my other thing is, like, you know, I've been very clear on this program since we started, like, back in October. I do not think Chris Mullen is a good coach. I don't think he's a good fit either. Um, he wasn't that hard a worker by all reports, and he didn't do much with the talent he was able to bring in. A lot of transfers and some freshmen, like Shamari Pons, uh, or, or recruits, I guess, high school recruits. Um, and so I think ultimately they were better off finding another coach. Now they, were, they would have been better off finding another coach without this like farcical uh, reporting of all these guys who turned them down and their their biggest bo- booster coming out and call, basically saying everyone should be fired. But I th- still think that if you were to tell if you had told me a month ago, hey, in a month Chris Mullen's not going to be the coach at St. John's and they're going to get Mike Anderson as their coach, I'd be like, that's weird. Mike Anderson, okay. And that's better than Chris Mullen. Right. So even though it took, they looked embarrassed doing it, and even though uh, we don't know all the details of it, they're probably, they may be better off right now than they were a month ago with Chris Mullen as their head coach. Yeah. So uh, the other big hire that uh, happened was because of a, 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 a separate hire that we talked about last time, which was Mick Cronin going from Cincinnati to UCLA. Cincinnati hired Nathan Brandon, who was the coach at Northern Kentucky. Um, you know, it seems like a kind of a classic move for a, a program like Cincinnati to basically find a really good head coach at a nearby mid-major and hire that person. I, I do think it's, you know, that Cincinnati is a program that in theory should be, has been good enough or should be big enough to get a bigger name if they wanted one. Now, maybe they just didn't want one. They had an assistant, uh, Darren Savino, that they could have hired from McCrone and staff. You know, they heard from Nick Van Exel, who's an assistant in the NBA and you know, obviously Cincinnati alum. I I, th- I think I'm fine with Nathan Brandon relative to Nick Van Exel, but you know, is there uh, a bigger name that they could have gotten? And is this a sign that like, you know, as much as the A as Cincinnati especially and, and the AAC wants to be a major conference, or even you look at the Big East. Um, Big East has obviously been better than the AAC every year that the Big East has existed and the AAC has existed. Um, but those conferences tend to replace coaches that leave with up-and-coming coaches. They don't tend to pluck a major conference coach who's not in who's in a good situation um, from their their good situation, which I think is different than what you see at least at the top tier of Pac-12, Big Ten, Big Twelve, and SEC and ACC schools. Yeah, Brandon had his team very offense was. Uh... It was okay this year in Northern Kentucky. He's made the tournament, what, three straight years, four straight years? Yeah, the Northern Kentucky Norsemen. Yeah. In, I think they're in, like, Highland Heights, North uh, Kentucky. That's probably not true. Highland Heights is Oh, it did. Wait. Oh, no. Cincinnati's made nine straight tournaments. Northern Kentucky's made uh, they've made two of the tournaments the last three years, 2019 last the season and 2017, 14th uh, seed and 15th seed. Um in the horizon, which, yeah. is, which used, to, used to be a good conference when they had, uh, you know, Butler was in that conference. It's I mean, Cincinnati's, what, two years removed from being a two seed? Yeah. So, I don't know. That seems strange, but I don't know. There's enough, I think there are enough good coaches out there with, you know, the local area that you can get. You don't have to pick any specific type of coach to do well. Mm-hmm. It's just, if they interviewed and knew the right guy, they didn't really have a flashy interview process for this guy. Like, there wasn't a saga like the other ones are. Maybe they knew they liked him, the AD has a good relationship with him, and they got him. Maybe they'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a... 
I think it's a fine hire. It, you know, it's reminiscent of what you've seen with you know Kevin Willard getting hired by Seton Hall. I, th- I think of like the Big East and the AAC. Like, okay, so Connecticut gets Dan Hurley from URI, which is a, sl- a higher level than Horizon. Providence gets Ed Cooley from uh, Fairfield, so Metro Atlantic. Kevin Willard was in the Metro Atlantic also. I think at Iona. Um, Lavar Jordan, he's an alum at Butler, but he was at Milwaukee. Like, um, this is this is what we've been what you see at most Big East and then good AAC schools, um, and then your lower tier of schools and other conferences too. I, like, you're it, it's only there's not that many schools actually out there that can take that can pluck a major conference coach who is successful for a better job. Because if you're a major conference and you're successful, there aren't going to be that many better jobs. In theory, Cincinnati could be um, for someone who's maybe at like a, a, a lower tier mid, uh, major conference school. But ultimately, they decided to go with the mid-major route. Yeah, I think it's fine. I don't really have a problem with it. So looking at all of these coaching changes... Um, what do you think are the best and worst hires? And, and I say this from the perspective of the schools. Um, what schools do you think did the best, got the best coach relative to what they should have been able to get, and then which schools do you think did, uh, did the worst? You can start with best or worst. I'll start with worst. And I don't, I don't know. This is complicated for me because UCLA uh, ran Steve Alford out of town for basically, in their eyes, perennially underachieving, right? This is a team that made the NCAA tournament, but didn't make the Final Four, and then kind of collapsed this year and was really bad. But they never really made as deep runs in the NCAA tournament as they thought they should. And A couple you know, of Sweet 16s, but yeah. nothing past Sweet 16. And, right. and even the, one of the years they did it, they got a kind of a gift call, and they they faced like a lower seed in the second round. Like right. it was, you know. So yes, they made the tournament every year in the Pac-12, which really is not that great an accomplishment the last few years, and then they fell flat in the tournament. So what do they do to, to like solve this problem? They hire Mick Cronin, who comes from Cincinnati, where he is perennially underachieved in the NCAA tournament. So you could say, and I'm not saying, you could say that that's bad luck or it doesn't really prove anything. It just seems like an odd hire based off that. And the second part of this is I think they may have scared off some younger, more higher upside possibly coaching candidates just by the way they embarrassed themselves with this whole search, like trying to offered John Calipari less than he was making at Kentucky to go to the, take the job at UCLA, just like these high-profile flirtations with other coaches that didn't work out. And then they're like, well, you can't you scramble. Then they kind of look like they're disorganized and like someone else who may be willing to go out there and explore, maybe they didn't get to him, and then they settled for Cronin. So that's why I think the worst hire is UCLA. It's just a weird – I don't know, maybe it's not the worst, but it's just like a weird thing to do to solve your problem. You have a very high expectations among your fans, and then you go – get a guy who has not really lived up to he's very consistent in the in the regular season but his teams have been kind of low ceiling teams recently mm-hmm. yeah i mean i do wonder if the um if they had just said from the beginning we want chris beard to be our coach whether the th- and they waited and waited and waited until the next deck got eliminated from the NCAA tournament and then they went and they gave him a bunch of money could they could Chris Beard be UCLA's coach right now? Like, like to me, that would have been that's the best coach you could have gotten, I think, because he's one, he's one of the best coaches in the country, and right. two, he's he's in a program that even though he obviously has ties to Texas Tech and he's assistant for a long time there, he is and he's from Texas. He's co- he he took a job at UNLV fairly recently for about few, a few days. He's, and 
Yeah, he's lurable. They could have gotten him away from there. Yeah. Texas Tech is also one of the worst jobs in the Big 12. <laughs> so, like, the fact that what he's done is ridiculous and amazing. Um, and so would Chris Beard have said no to, like, a raise and being the coach at UCLA? I don't know. And so I think in that sense, I do agree. I, I didn't have it on my list. I only had one major conference job on my list, um, and that is Arkansas. Um, people, I think, generally like that Arkansas hired Eric Musselman. I'm not an Eric Musselman fan. Um, you know, I think he's also an awkward fit at Arkansas. Uh, we saw what he did with Nevada. He had one good run to the in the NCAA tournament, uh, underachieved vastly underachieved this year and I thought really used his personnel poorly um he had a very deep team and yet he had one of the shortest benches uh functionally one of the shortest benches in college basketball he also is not a big recruiter he's more of a transfer getter and I don't think that that is a really an effective strategy at in the SEC um maybe it can work it's worked in the big 12 at Iowa State um but I think that Part of the advantage of being the SEC is that there's a lot of good athletes in Texas and Louisiana and, um, you know, the Missouri kind of, you know, whether it's St. Louis or Kansas City area. And you need to be able to recruit. And Eric Musselman is not that big a fan of recruiting. So I think I think it's not a good fit. Like maybe, I'll, I mean, again, he might prove me wrong and, and maybe he'll get Arkansas. I think he'll probably do a better job than Mike Anderson did at Arkansas, um, which was I think he didn't get past the second round of the NCAA tournament. And um, he went to, I think, something like five NCAA tournaments. Let me get the, the information. Um, five is too high, probably. So um, Mike Anderson at Arkansas was there eight years, went to three NCAA tournaments, and won a game in this tournament twice. His highest seed was five. Um, his worst year was his, his worst two years were his first two when he went, uh, when he, he was 127 and 80 in Ken Palm. After that, he was in the top 80 every year. Um, including this year where they missed the tournament. I think he'll do better than that. Um, three NCAA tournaments in eight years with no Sweet 16s, that's not that high a bar, but I still don't really like the hire, especially since they were rumored to be involved with Kelvin Sampson and some other big names, um, and they didn't end up getting uh, Kelvin Sampson, which I think would have been a much better hire. Um, my other two are, we don't talk about very long, we're just smaller ones, Southern Illinois and William & Mary. Um, the Southern Illinois coach was an assistant, uh, Brian Mullins to Barry Hinson. Um, his first time head coach. It's a pretty storied program, and I thought they could have done better than Brian Mullins. Um, it, it seemed like a weird hire at the time. William and Mary is the other one I have on here. No one really cares about William and Mary, so I don't get so much time on it. But <laughs> um, they had Tony Shaver there for a while, and they really had a team that was ready to be really good next year. And I know he's been there forever, so it's like, okay, well. He was there for 16 seasons. I mean, they say a tournament. Uh, they hired Dane Fisher, which I don't know much about Dane Fisher, but I do know, uh, I guess he was the lead assistant at George Mason. I do know that um, after they fired Tony Shaver, pretty much everyone transferred at William & Mary. So they're going to have a, several years of being bad before they, be, they get good again. Um, any thoughts on any other bad hires or any of the ones I mentioned before we move on to the good hires? I totally agree with um, Musselman and... Arkansas, I feel like they could have done better. And why would you take a guy whose stock is declining? I know, I don't know. He's he he had a preseason top ten team and talent. Everyone thought so. Either everyone whiffed on a talent evaluation, or he just didn't get everyone to play well together. 
or use his assets right. And I think it's a little bit of both, and that falls on the coach. And it's still a weird job to take where you don't like to be a recruiter. I mean, a real any college basketball head coach. Like, it's so much easier to recruit than to go after transfers with restrictions and sit-outs and all that stuff. It just seems like a weird approach to take to um, to uh, coaching college basketball. Of course, there is the, you know, marketing and efficiency for getting transfers, but to build your entire team out of transfers is what you try to do basically at Nevada doesn't seem like a good idea so mm-hmm. um yeah uh he, he did recruit a five-star center this year um but then he didn't play him very much so i don't know yeah um as far as my um best i like nebraska bringing fred hoiberg back to the ncaa world i think he was very good obviously at iowa state seems like a good fit same geographic area uh, i know his teams gave kansas fits a uh, very good offensive coach obviously obviously the NBA gig didn't work out too well in Chicago, uh, but I really like that hire. Uh, Texas A&M getting buzz is great. Um, Wofford and Alabama. Um, I also liked doing Alabama. I mean, um, from Buffalo. He's the type of guy I thought, you know, he seems like a very, he's a high upside guy. It seems like who's done great at Buffalo. There was 96 and 43 there. And, like, you know, they were a team that was, like, you know, the Darlingman major the entire season, based kind of a little unfairly off of a win against a really bad West Virginia team, but he kept that team going. They were really good. And who was the other team I said? I just lost it again. Uh, Alabama. Alabama. Oh, no, you said Wofford. Oh, yeah, Wofford. Because, you know, uh, yeah. Um, they lost Mike Young to uh, Virginia Tech. Right. To, he replaced Buzz Williams, and they um, – I think that they promoted an Yeah, the Jay McCauley, yes. That's a little risky, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I also had Texas A&M and Buzz Williams on there. Uh, I think Buzz Williams is a, is an excellent coach. He's a very strange human being. <laughs> but um, he seems to have ended up where he always wanted to be, which is in Texas. Um, and so I think that, that if they couldn't have done better. I, I can't imagine they did, they're doing better. Washington State, as much as um, they, they hired Kyle Smith from USF, as much as... Um, you know, I am worried about Kyle Smith going to GW to Washington State. Uh, I do think it's a great hire for Washington State. It's good to think outside the box, and Kyle Smith is a definitely outside the box thinker, very analytically minded, and I think that's the kind of guy you want at a school like Washington State, which is probably the hardest job along with Oregon State in the Pac-12. Um, and they they have local ties there, the Smiths do, so it's it's not a terrible fit. Uh, they've been out on the West Coast in the past, both at USF and an assistant is at St. Mary's in San Diego. Um, so I do like that hire. George Washington hired Jamie on Christian, who I, I really like. Um, he he was at um, Mount St. Mary's for a while, went to the NCAA tournament there a couple times, and then he was at Siena last year, and they were surprised. They were supposed to be terrible. It was supposed to be one of the worst teams in the Metro Atlantic, and they ended up finishing second. Um, he runs a really slow style, um, but basically, George Washington used to be a, a stalwart program in the Atlantic 10 um, when they had Mike Jarvis, and even later, um, they had good teams uh, in the 2000s at, um, at George Washington, but then they've gone on this run where they haven't been very good for a while, um, and I think that this is a program in D.C. where you can, you can win pretty big, at least at, for the A-10 level, I guess, and um, I think Jamie on Christian can do that. Um, and the other one I have is Tulane. 
Tulane uh, fired or they let go of Mike Dunleavy, and they hired Ron Hunter. And Ron Hunter is the coach of Georgia, Georgia State. It was very good there. They beat Baylor in the NCAA tournament. He, he ruptured his Achilles. Everyone remembers that. Um, but Georgia State, you could argue, is actually a better job than Tulane. So for Tulane to, or as they say down south, Tulane, for Tulane to be able to get Ron Hunter for Georgia State, I think was a coup. And um, if he is successful there, he would be the first coach to be successful there since the 90s yeah. um, when they had Gerald Honeycutt. I, I want to speak to your Tulane, Tulane uh, distinction because yeah. I've asked people who went to Tulane slash Tulane how it's supposed to be pronounced, and they couldn't give me a def- definite answer, which I found troubling. Um, and uh, <laughs> I also want to go back to your disappointments or worst jobs because uh, Southern Illinois, I know we both follow um, Jordan Sperber on Twitter his mm-hmm. solving basketball podcast to vision 68 on Twitter. He counted the number of times coaches said culture in their introductory news conference. He also put together two videos, one about uh, coaches repeating playing up-tempo basketball, basically in one talking about culture. Your guy, Brian Mullins was the all time leader with seven culture references at his introductory news conference. Now, Lest you think that that's a sign of a bad coach, Buzz Williams came in second with six, mm. and no one else, had, no one had more than five. Uh, no one, no one else had more than four actually, according to this uh, very scientific tracker. <laughs> It'll be fun to look back and see how wrong or right we were on some of these. On everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think especially it's it's it'll be pretty stark because in four or five years. Uh, by the way, I agree about Fred Hoiberg. I think he's a really good hire. I thought that Tim Miles was actually quite a good coach, so I didn't think that the jump to Tim, for Fred Hoiberg is as great. But I do think that he'll be quite successful at Nebraska. Nate Oates. Uh, my only comment on him is similar to Mike Anderson. He's a uh, fish out of water down south after having his entire career basically right around the Great Lakes. Uh, obviously, he was from was at Buffalo, but he also coached in Michigan and other kind of Great Lake adjacent states. Um, so I I'm I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's more of a big deal if you don't if your personality doesn't fit culturally. I think it's less of a big deal for um, recruiting because you can always hire assistants and you can and players will come from all around. Like especially a place like Alabama, I think it's less of an issue. St. John's a little tricky, but um, but you can get players. The Big East has had players. Always had players from the South in the Big East, so I, I don't think that Mike Anderson would have tr- would have trouble bringing in players. No. Finally, before well, we have I have a couple more topics, but we'll talk a little about transfers. Um, well, we'll know some of the big transfers that have happened, um, and then one that has not happened yet that will happen. And I want to focus on the ones that are immediately eligible, just because uh, the other ones are going to be for not going to actually play for a while. Uh, one surprising one was Joey Bronco went from Butler to Indiana as a grad transfer. Um, he was a successful rotation player at Butler and a team that is he would have been a featured player, I think, next year. And now he's going to go be like the third big man at Indiana, uh, be part of that rotation there. Beetle Bolden is going to go to Alabama, play for Nate Oates. He was, I think, dismissed, right, Tom, from West Virginia? Yes, that sounds right. So you can see um, why my transfer. Yeah. Max Hazard is, um, was at UCI, that good Irvine team. And now he's going to be at Arizona. He's a little guard who probably come off the bench and score a lot of points. Kentucky gets Nate Sestina, who's one of the best players in the Patriot League at Bucknell last year. Um, looking down at other ones, uh, Christian Keeling is uh, from Charleston Southern. He's going to North Carolina. He was fourth in Ken Palm's uh, Big South um, Player of the Year rankings. Uh, we mentioned previously Luan Pipkins going to Providence, but. Um, 
Kerry Blackshear is one of the big names that's still out there. He was one of the best players in the ACC last year. I think he was second team all league. He could have been he he could have been first team, and by that I mean not saying that he was a snub, but if he was on the team, no one would have complained. He's looking in the NBA, but he's also looking at Florida, Texas A&M, where his former coaches, Michigan State, Gonzaga, and Tennessee. Um, and then the only other item is this Hauser item. But uh, so the Hausers are transferring out of Mich- out of Marquette. Um, Marcus Howard announced he's coming back, and three days later, the Hausers are announced they're leaving. And there's a lot of speculation that that's because they didn't want to play with that Marcus Howard, that he was f- overly favored by Wojo, that he, he was never, he was, Wojo could never find any fault with what Marcus Howard did. And now uh, Sam Hauser, who are the second and third leading scorers at Marquette, will be transferring. And the rumors are that Virginia, Wisconsin, Michigan State, and Iowa are interested. Any thoughts from you on either Marquette or any of the other transfers that we mentioned? It's definitely not a good look for Wojo to have those two players transfer, the brothers transfer. Uh, by the way, Kerry Blackshear was second team all ACC. Um, okay. I don't. Yeah, it's 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 very troubling for Marquette. And as you said earlier, they were you know finished picked in the top ten in a lot of polls, and now that's obviously going to take a huge hit. Um, I don't know. It's that's tough, and it's also bad when I don't know. It's you don't. <laughs> It makes you wonder. I don't know. It just makes you wonder what whether they underachieved this year with the way uh, Wojo coached, based off of um, these feelings and what underlying feelings are. There's so many things we don't know about these teams and in the locker rooms, the way th- uh, the coaches and players interact. I don't know. It would be that would be very disappointing because it's basically your program is now screwed up for two years or a year because you just lost those two guys. It's just, it took. It's just a real punch in the gut because you take a team, you bring a lot of guys back, and now all of a sudden it's like a total question mark for next year. And we're going to get these guys that were you weren't planning to have to replace. I, I do wonder if part of the f- bad finish this season the Marquette had, they lost six of their final seven games. Their only win, I actually was there. They won by 32 against St. John's, uh, another team that was floundering on, on the stretch um, in, in the Big East tournament. Uh, they got blown out by Murray State in the NCAA tournament. John Morant, they lost by 19, and they had previously lost four games to finish the regular season. They were 12-2 and in conference and lost their final four conference games, including home games to non-NCAA tournament teams, Creighton and Georgetown. Um, so you wonder whether this was kind of festering already. Uh, I, I kind of want to take a devil's advocate approach, not so much with Wojo, because I don't have a whole lot of faith <laughs> or confidence in Wojo. But I do think that this team can be very... I think that this team will be actually underrated next year. They bring in Kobe McEwen, who's a transfer, um, who's a sit-out transfer. They're looking at... And he's going to come in, I think, and start right away. He went to Utah State, and when their coach left last year, they obviously brought in Craig Smith, who had a great year at Utah State, but uh, McEwen had already left. Um, And they have um, guys like Sakar Annam and Jamal Cain and... um, Brendan Bailey, this actually can make their team more athletic and better defensively, although they're going to take a big stop, a step back offensively or then put more offense um, in in uh, the hands of Marcus Howard, which, you know, sometimes they, he already was at 36% possess, um, usage this year. It's hard to imagine him getting much higher. Uh, we're talking about kind of Trey Young levels if we get much higher than that. So um, I do think that Marquette will be an NCAA tournament team next year. I do think they'll be a top 30, 35 team, They're, especially if they a couple of these grad transfers to stay. But, um, you know, I, I, I wonder if you if gun to head, Wojo would have rather had the Housers 
and then said to Marcus Howard, hey, uh, go enjoy the NBA. Um, Howard has a chance to have like one of the all-time great Marquette careers yeah. by the time he's done because he's going to be a four-year player. I think that the, the question is, can you go down as a Marquette great uh, without going deep in the NCAA tournament? Like Dwayne Wade is a Marquette great because he went to the Final Four. Um, and then they have had recent teams and players that have gone to the Elite Eight um, uh, and are like re- well known because of that. Whether it's like Jimmy Butler or um, Jay Crowder, Crowder yeah. or, um, and then you go back to like the '70s where they won a national title. This is a, a school that's used to postseason success, and the fact that they haven't gotten an NCAA tournament win under Marcus Howard or under Steve Wojciechowski is um, I think that they're going to need to make a Sweet 16 for Marcus Howard to really go down as a... I, I guess I'm trying to think of what the other comp is. Like, who is a player who is an all-time, like, leading all the accessible categories for school that has a really good history but didn't actually do that much in March? I'm sure we could come up with a few uh, if we thought about it, but um, that would not be good if he went to three NCAA tournaments and didn't win a game, which I think is on the table yeah, at this point. Yeah, I'm trying to think who would be a good... Who's, like, what really good school has had, a, like, a four-year run where they've had a good player and not done well oh, i mean pete maravich was kind of like that he only played three years but lsu was not good right. when he was there um yeah i'm trying to think of who else like felipe lopez is is very well respected at st john's but they didn't go very deep in the ncaa tournament in his time there um i'm sure there are others uh but yeah those those come to mind um i mean doug mcdermott it's a different because creighton is not known for having right. NCAA tournament success um, so I think it's a little bit different than a place like Marquette where you have multiple Final Fours, you have a national championship, um, than it is at a place like Creighton or some other school. Like like Northwestern, like John Sherna at Northwestern. Like He's an all-time great Northwestern player. Northwestern never made the NCAA tournament until a couple of years ago, so it's, it's not yeah. analogous. It's pretty tough to be a great player at a good school and have a bad NCAA tournament record. Yeah. Um, you, want to talk, you mentioned grad transfers. You want to talk about that? I was a little surprised that the NCAA... Uh, Division One Council decided not to restrict uh, grad transfers because it seems like every decision they make it goes against the players, and this one didn't um, didn't go against the players. See, I think so. A little bit of background on this: basically, the rule rule was it actually. I don't think that the rule going place would have been would have gone against the players. Maybe a little bit, but basically, the idea was. People are using the grad transfer as a loophole. That, that guys are not actually the the notion of a grad transfer is if you've already graduated from college and you have eligibility left, you can transfer to take part in a master's program or other grad program at another school, um, and don't have to sit out. It sounds cool, interesting idea, uh, but of course there's loopholes. So basically, you're only going to play one year in most cases. So who cares if you actually get your master's? And so basically, I think the rule was if they didn't get their master's, the proposed rule was that if the player did not get his master's in the proposed field of study within two years, no, one year. then the, within, oh, it had to be one year. Yeah. Well, so within one year, then um, then the team would lose a scholarship subsequently. Right. Um, I, I think that they could have tweaked this to make it fairer. Like, I think you could have said, one, give the, give the player two years to finish the, the program. Two... You would pair it with, um, or replace it by, a one-time free transfer, no questions asked rule. Um, like I think that I, sh- I actually think grad transfer is, is is not good. I, I don't like the rule. I think that it would be much better to be like every single player in Division One can during the summer, like the off season, like not during the middle of the of the season, 
can transfer anywhere that player wants without restrictions, without sitting out, period. The second transfer then has restrictions. But I think, I think that that would be a good compromise. Then you wouldn't, like, basically, a gra- what you're, the system right now is that you set up to create incentives for players to transfer early in their career. So then they have the ability to graduate in four years, have only played three years because they've already had to sit out once, and then now they're a free agent transfer again. So it's creating more scenarios where players play at three schools. I think it would actually be better for the player in a more of a paternalistic sense, but also better for college basketball if you just said, okay, we already have 1,000 transfers. Let's meet the rule is you transfer once, you go wherever you want, and you, play, you can play right away. And, then, and that would be a big win for player empowerment and it, but it also wouldn't like create these weird incentives to actually want, get players to transfer earlier so they can transfer again later. Yeah, it, first of all, it definitely is anti-player to not allow them to transfer. It's not. It's, it does punish the school, but it makes the schools much less likely to work to get these transfers, and which then because there's a tax basically on the transfer. If it doesn't work out, he doesn't get his degree. So it does mm. hurt the players' flexibility. The NCAA is so disingenuous with how it markets itself. Oh, they're just uh, just other students who happen to play basketball. But like, if I want to trans, if I was a student in college and I want to transfer from one school to the next, I wouldn't have to. There were no restrictions. I'm gonna just call up the school and go. So obviously you have to. Yeah, but you, but you can still do that. Right, you just as can't a play basketball. Basketball player. Right, right. But yeah. yeah, it's not a great system right now. I like your idea of one question, one transfer, no questions asked. That thing is a good idea. The grad transfer to me is actually less. Uh, it's more like schemey than in uh, the most of the other ones, and so I don't really mm-hmm. like it as much. But again, I'm not gonna. I st- don't dislike it enough to say it should be restricted. But mm-hmm. I think a much better reform for transfer would be to just allow players to transfer once. I understand the at some point it hurts the sport to just have players being able to transfer within conference, no restriction, or overall with no restriction. But um, at the same time, you got to give these players their 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 rights to do what they want and not punish them for doing that so yeah yeah i think it would be a pr win and i think that so many players are transferring already that the restrictions set up are not actually right lowering yeah. transfers so you might as well get a pr win by opening it up to everyone you, to do one you save so much time on the hardship waivers yeah yeah you can you can invest some of that money in someone actually investigating paying the players if you want to actually yeah. find out about that right, we just solved everyone's problems good job good yeah there you go yeah, I feel like Jay Billis. Everything's so simple. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's finish out with some no, with no homers club. Yeah. Uh, talking about how we're feeling about Kansas, Providence, Northwestern, Columbia, whoever you want to talk about, Washington State maybe. Um, now that we're in on April twenty eighth, why don't you start? Talk, 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 tell me how you feel about Kansas right now. Uh, I feel okay. It's very good news that Azubuki's coming back. Uh, maybe he'll stay healthy the Doke. whole year. Um, yeah, Doke. Uh, I remember he had the wrist injury, and then he had some other injury this year, and he played very well last year. He's obviously still a major question mark because they can foul him down the stretch. Opponents can foul him down the stretch, so hopefully he spent all summer working on free throws. But he is a monster. This will be his last year at Kansas, and it's a good bright spot to have him come back because we saw in that game against Duke and that run in the 2018 NCAA tournament how valuable he can be when healthy. And we also saw how much they missed him this year after he left the team, after his injury ended his season. So very happy about that. Uh, their backcourt of Devon Dotson and Frank Grimes, both players have done this ambiguous thing where they're declared for the NBA draft, uh, but they're like you know still exploring their options and still eligible to return. Um, it seems like people think that Dotson is going to come back and Grimes 
is going to leave, which is weird because I think Dotson had the better year than Grimes for Kansas, so it's puzzling, but the NBA is a weird place sometimes. I think that's good for Kansas if they get one of them back because Bill Self is very good at developing guards. You can see developing players, period. Like The players who play at Kansas four years get better. Like Thomas Robinson made a huge leap, obviously not a guard, but he made some huge steps. Devontae Graham, Frank Mason, all... um, obviously both guards and obviously made uh, giant strides with them. And so if Dotson is such a great athlete and so fast, and if he can get his jump shot a little bit better, I think he'll really help uh, Kansas next year. And of course, Kansas, they still has a huge black cloud of the uh, FBI investigation over them. Uh, I mentioned earlier, they re-signed the Adidas deal, which seems weird, but whatever. Um, so I think that that may hurt them a little bit in recruiting, but I think right now they're ranked in the top 10 class coming in. So by a couple measures, so that's good for them. And Self knows what he's doing. He's a very good in-game coach and strategizer, um, or strategist, I should say. So I'm pretty optimistic Kansas will be competing for the Big 12 title next year. Uh, they may not be the favorites based on who comes back other places, but I think they'll be right up there. So okay with them. Yeah, the um, I was reading a quote-unquote way too early <laughs> Big 12 preview by C- by the by C.J. Moore, who may be the best Big 12 writer around. He's, uh, he works at The Athletic, like pretty much everyone. I think I work at The Athletic somehow. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I was looking at their list of writers. It's like 5,000 names along. Um, I'm not sure how that business model works, but I guess they'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> so, But he had a preview, and he had Kansas uh, picked second um, behind Baylor, actually, uh, which is interesting. The Big 12 loses a lot, but also... It looks very bunched from like one to six or seven. Um, there's one player named Ray John Tucker who came up in that article who's uh, transferring as a grad transfer from Arkansas Little Rock, uh, which happens to be Chris Beard's old stomping ground. Um, but uh, Tucker is a shooter, shot 42%, made 73s last year, and um, is a six six five guard and would fit in really well uh, next to Devin Dotson. Kansas needs shooting, but a lot of people are looking at him. I think Iowa State's interested in him, and um, I think there were three or four Big 12 schools alone that were interested in him. Um, so we'll we'll see where he lands. He could be a big piece for Kansas and probably would make them the conference favorite if they got him because it would help answer one of their big question marks. Um, the Big 12 is interesting because they lose a lot. Uh, I think the top of the Big 12 will be worse, but the bottom will be better because Virginia should bounce back. Oklahoma State should be a bit better. Um, those are the two worst teams last year, but I think um, the top of the league might be a bit uh, a bit worse. So it's going to be maybe even more quote unquote competitive, like balance than even we even the balance league that we've seen the last few years. One thing I want to correct, I think I called him Frank Grimes. It's obviously Quentin Grimes. Frank Grimes is a bit character from one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons. So I think that may be how I got him in my head. Uh, yeah, and just remember one thing about the Big Twelve is last year everyone wrote off Texas Tech as it also ran and they won the league and almost won the national title. So. They're in, mm-hmm. in this in this uh, athletic article. They're in the question marks but dangerous category, number four. I think they are definitely dangerous. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Texas also is ranked third in there, and I think it's interesting. Um, Shaka Shaka Smart has not won an NCAA tournament game since he's been at Texas. He's missed the NCAA tournament two or four years. Um, this is going to be a big year for him, and he has he has the horses. Assuming everyone comes back, everyone's healthy, uh, to really make uh, a run. Um, they of course won the NIT. Of course, maybe you don't know. They won the NIT. Yeah. They in the a uh, great game against Lipscomb in the final. I'm not sure if people are watching the Lipscomb Texas uh, final of the NIT, but they did win the NIT, and they have uh, a lot of guys returning. Uh, you have any thoughts on Columbia or? 
Uh, Colombia has kind of languished. It's a little disappointing to see what's... They've kind of not picked up the slack since our friend Kyle Smith uh, left. It's always an honor to have a player transfer to a major conference team, as Quinton Adlish did from Columbia to USC. So, I don't know. The uh, Columbia always underachieves. And, I don't know, whatever, I, think, I feel like they've squandered the momentum from the Kyle Smith era. And Jim Ingles has... It's a critical season for him coming up. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's a tough nut to crack in the Ivy League. There's some teams that are good, usually year in year out, and some are bad. And Columbia is one that's bad almost every year. So it's tough. They've won an Ivy League title yeah. since 1968, when everyone else has won one since. So and even and there was the Penn Princeton, you know, dual hegemony, whatever you want to call it, for a long time. But now Cornell, Yale have cracked it. Brown split an Ivy League Harvard. title. Harvard, obviously. So it's not it's not so easy to just say, oh, well, they're not one of the powers anymore. Like. I don't know. They should be doing better. Yeah, I mean they are ranked uh, 140. So Bart Torvik has a has a website where he does all kinds of advanced statistics. He, it's kind of like it's some different things than, than what Ken Palm does. Uh, he does some player based projections um, that are interesting. Not always right, obviously, but it's interesting. And he, and he has Columbia actually 144th, which is pretty high for an Ivy League team. Um, so we'll see how that changes um, once the season starts or getting closer to the season. Uh, he has Kansas 8th, by the way. Um, Northwestern looks like they're going to be, along with Nebraska, the worst teams in the Big, uh, the Big Ten next year. The, oh, right now they only have nine scholarship players, and I think three, six of them are either fr- going to be freshmen or sophomores. They lose their two best players in Derek Pardon and uh, Vic Law. Uh, they also had three grad transfers out. Um, Barrett Benson was is a big guy who probably would have played some, and the other two, Aaron Falzone, who's had a lot of injuries, and Jordan Nash is a backup guard, are not big surprises. None of them land anywhere yet. But over the last year, you know, Rapolis Ivanowskis transferred out of Northwestern, and then he went to Colgate, where he won the Player of the Year, and the Patriot took him to the NCAA tournament. Jordan Lathan was supposed to be the starting point guard last year, but he had his admission revoked, um, and he ended up landing at UTEP. He was going to be a uh, very important player last year and said they had to have Vic Law, who's not a point guard at all, play point guard. They do have Robbie Barron coming in, one of their top-rated recruits of all time at 79th in the country. He's a, he's a big guy, power forward. Um, but, you know, Chris Collins, similar to Steve Wojciechowski, a couple of former Duke assistants uh, in the Midwest uh, who are in a, in a bit of a tough spot. Um, obviously, Chris Collins has a pass for a long time for getting the NCAA tournament for the first time ever. But it does look like um, certainly not next year. Northwestern um, will be on the NCAA tournament team. We'll see how they are next year and whether they kind of project to maybe go the following year. Um, Providence, we've talked about a, a couple episodes ago. Um, they added, as I mentioned, the transfer point guard, Luan Pipkins from UMass, which is a big addition because of how poor the point guard play was last year. Basically, Providence was a point guard away from being a definite NCAA tournament team and maybe even like a top 40 team. Instead, they were had the worst offense in the Big East and made the NIT. Um, they also got two other recent transfer uh, nods, one from Jared Bynum, who's a point guard from St. Joe's. Of course, St. Joe's um, fired Phil Martelli, um, and so part of the reason why a lot of people are leaving there, they had another, guy, another player transfer to uh, Louisville, um, that was Lamar Kimball. He's going to be a grad transfer, and then Providence also got Noah Horchler, a big guy from North Florida. He uh, was dismissed from the team for multiple violation of team rules, which I, I'm not sure Doesn't what that make is. Him a bad it guy. sounds like, <laughs> yeah, 
Emmett, Emmett Holt similarly was dismissed from Indiana, ended up taking a JUCO year and coming to Providence has been a model citizen. And, a, and he, he was a great player two years ago for Providence as a big. Uh, last year, he had a very serious abdominal surgery and missed the entire Actually, he's now missed two straight seasons. He played a little bit, actually, last year. So three seasons ago, he was an important part of the rotation, a starter. Two seasons ago, he had this surgery. He missed all of, last, of that season. That this season, he came back, and he played like maybe a handful of minutes, and he's probably going to get a, a waiver to play a six-year nice. next year. But a similar situation to Noah Horchler in that um, kind of had a spotty reputation coming out of Indiana for an incident or, that he had there. It's unclear what Noah Horschel did in North Florida, but um, anyway, he's coming to Providence. These they're both these, but are both probably set out transfers. Bynum and Horschler, although you could imagine with Martelli leaving St. Joe's, that Bynum could be an immediate uh, waiver. It's possible. Um, but I do think you know there was a preview of the Big E, similar to the Big Ten, Big Twelve preview by Shannon Russell, who, who covers like Xavier a lot, and I think she's really good. I thought this article was did not add much to the discussion. Um, she had Providence actually in like ranked seventh, which I thought was too. I mean, the Big East is going to be better next year than it was last year by far, and it could have six or seven NCAA tournament teams. Although again, now that Marquette has lost the Housers, it's looking a little bit weak at the top. Um, and Villanova lost Phil Booth and Eric Pascal, so it's like the, they may not have a top fifteen team, but with Seton Hall, Marquette, Villanova, Xavier, and some others, they could have a bunch of top forty teams. And I do think Providence belongs in that conversation. You know, if they have a good point guard play, they bring everyone else back. All their good players are coming back, assuming Alpha Diallo does not actually go pro. He's, like, testing the waters. It looks pretty clear that he's going to come back. Um, I do think Providence – I'd be very surprised if Providence doesn't make the NCAA tournament next year, and, and I'd be worried about where the trajectory of the program is if they don't. I think that they should be a top 40 team. Um, and so I think that putting them seventh is uh, underselling – the Friars, but it does speak to the fact that there are kind of seven good teams in the Big East entering next year with DePaul and Butler as question marks, eight and nine, and then, uh, or nine and eight, depending on what order you want to put them in, and St. John's clearly the worst team in the St. John's, the subtitle in the Shannon Russell article is dot, 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 psi, number 10, St. John's. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing, Washington State, we discussed how they hired Kyle Smith, a friend of the show. Maybe we'll have him on at some point. Um, but they are in this Bart Torvik ranking are 283rd. Um, so they are a candidate to go winless in the Pac-12. Well, if they were in a good conference, maybe winless, but they're in the Pac-12, so they should be able to win a few games there. They went. Uh, Washington State won four games, ranked 207th last year, and loses by far their best player, which is Robert Franks. Um, so it's a, definitely a big rebuilding program for um Cosmos in Washington State. He should have a very long uh, rope, and uh, I would expect them to not finish 283rd next year. I think they'll probably finish in the top 250 at least. It's a I low mean, bar, but I think they're sandwiched by Maine at 282nd and Niagara at 284th. I feel like they can. I mean, Maine is one of the worst programs in Division One. I. I feel like that's <laughs> Kyle Smith can outstrip Maine in the uh, rankings there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'll take uh, uh, Washington State over Maine in Ken Palm rankings. UNLV is 279th in this ranking, by the way. That's uh, another eye-popper. And they have a new coach, yeah. TJ Otzelberger, um, which we don't talk about too long, but he was the coach at South Dakota State the last uh, for a while, or three years at least. Um, and he, had, he won 28 and 24 games the last two years with Mike Dom, made two NCAA tournaments in the last three years made the NIT this year, and um, 
Anyway, I think that's a good hire. Marvin Menzies, he's always been riding the coattails of having been a former Cupertino assistant and didn't, wasn't really great at New Mexico State and wasn't really great at UNLV. And so I think it's actually a pretty good hire for the running Rebels. Yeah. There's your TJ Otzelberger. Yeah. Took us a while to get you it, but... You don't get a lot of TJ Otzelberger on other no. podcasts. If you made it to the hour and 15-minute mark, you were yes, rewarded. Yes, thank you. And I think that's probably a good time to, call, to close up yeah. shop. Anyway, rate, review, subscribe, email us. You have questions you want to talk to, you want to talk about? It's evergreen off-season yeah. time. You can about whatever you want to talk about. Email us at uh, doublebonuspod at gmail.com. Follow us at doublebonuspod on Twitter. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, um, five stars or more. And uh, we'll catch you in a couple more weeks uh, when we, I don't know, who knows what will happen. Maybe uh, some indictments of, uh, of college basketball coaches. We want arrests, indictments, and convictions before our next podcast. Yes. Not of each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe in the next six months. It's a hockey season. Good night. Foul, just inferior equipment and superior body strength.